Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? I hope you are having a blessed day. I'm so glad to be with you as we jump back into the book of Acts here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Now, again, if you've missed any previous episodes, if you have not even studied the Gospels with us, you can check out our website. All you have to do is go to our website, go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast. You'll see all the archives there if you get on Apple Whatever your platform is, there's our study notes, and you can also check these um, episodes out on YouTube if you just go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast, and you'll you'll see all the information you need that's readily available for you guys because, again, our purpose, no matter where you are at in your faith, our purpose here is to help you stand strong in the Word. And my friends, one of the things that we do here in the ministry is to help you understand God's word because less than 20% of Christians read the Bible every day. Now, I know we are only recording once a week, but there are other plans. If you go to Version and you put in my name, Jason P. Jimenez, there's, there's Version plans there. We encourage people while you're on Version to study the Bible, read verses, whether you want to go through a portion of the Old Testament or the New Testament, you want to take a particular topic like the Psalms or the Gospels or Proverbs. But the point is, my friends, do something because one of the things that you hear all the time from Christians is just excuses. And so that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast and we provide information where we don't just you know talk about the Bible. We look at it verse by verse provide you audio, provide you video, and provide notes. And the sad reality, there's just a lot of Christians out there where they just want short you know, snippets, if you will, just like the sermonization of things, just kind of give me in, in, in simplistic terms of self-application. And we do believe in that to a certain extent, but we first believe in looking at the text, interpreting it hermeneutically, properly, objectively, and as the Holy Spirit illuminates us, and as we interpret Scripture with Scripture, then we see what the Lord is speaking to us through that, instead of just taking a subjective approach, a very emotional approach. And so that's why we spend the time just diving in Scripture and looking at it for what it is. So I pray if you've been a follower for quite some time, we want to just thank you for just making it a priority. Um, not just for us, but mainly and most importantly for our Lord, because I just look forward to the time as I pray and I study God's word for my own life, but prepare for our wonderful audience, that it's just a great joy to just open the Bible with you week after week. So with that being said, and showing you guys how you can jump on our website and check out um, all of the archives there. We are now going to be in Acts chapter 15. And this is podcast 128. And the title here is A Big Debate in the Church Over the Law. Now, at the center of the book of Acts, Luke gives an account of a conflict 
that arose between Jews and Christians over the matter of circumcision. And the Jerusalem Council now, they are going to, in this chapter, we're going to see, they're going to assemble together and they're going to talk about this matter and they're going to, they're going to figure out what kind of response should the church have in handling some of these issues regarding blood and animal sacrifices that were given to the temple to other gods besides the Lord himself. So that's where we pick things up. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn to uh, Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read verses one through five. And this section is a problem arises in the church. So notice it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so there are a lot here already right in the opening gate of Acts chapter 15. Now, notice this portion here that Luke introduces when it says someone came from Judea and were teaching. That means they were parting information. They were giving instruction to their brothers. And what that instruction was is saying, look, if you're not circumcised, your conversion to Christ is not legit. So many Judaizers believed in Jesus as Messiah, but they found it hard to abandon some of the ancient customs. Now this term circumcised, many believed you needed to become a Jew and you needed to keep the law in order to be saved. Now, I want to make a quick distinction because we're going to be studying this. We've, we've touched on it a little bit, particularly when you look back at Acts chapter 15, or excuse me, Acts chapter 13, and we're going to see it later in Acts chapter 18. What we have to understand is this right here is wrong. Clearly, it opposes uh, the Christian doctrine. There's nothing added except for what Christ has done in the finished work. Okay, but what we cannot disregard is that Paul, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew, an Israelite, I'm an Israelite. I mean, he was a, a Jewish Christian. We run into um, Apollos and he's a Hellenistic Christian Jew, Jewish Christian, I should say. Now, what that means is they were still abiding by many of the feasts. They were, again, traditionally, customarily, historically, genetically a Jew. So it wasn't like they completely abandoned Jewish practice. They saw that Christianity was not a new religion. They saw it was the fulfillment of Judaism. And so as they lived out their faith as a Jew, now we refer to them today as Messianic Jews, um, that's a beautiful thing. But here we see they're saying, no, you have to do certain things in order to be saved. And there's a difference. We'll touch on that later um, as we go again through the book of Acts. But that's an important distinction because Jesus was a Jew and he practiced many 
things within Judaism, according to the fulfillment of scripture, right? That we refer to as the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. And that's exactly what, again, these early Christians that were Jewish were still doing. But of course, you have this sect of Judaizers who are taking it way out of proportion. And again, at this point in time, you're going to have now, I believe, and I'll be talking about it in this episode, Paul writing to the Church of Galatia, again, condemning this point of view. And this is one of the reasons why there is a big problem that rises in the church, because then how do you deal with some of these things? So in verse two, when it says after Paul and Barnabas, there, there was no small dissension, they were engaging in this emotional exchange. So you can imagine them coming with tradition and saying, no, this is the way it has to be because this is what our forefathers have done. And they could say, look, we understand that, but now the Messiah has come. So let's show you some of the fulfillment. So this debate, this means to express forceful differences over controversies. So there was all kinds of things that they're debating. Now, of course, Luke is giving you a snapshot. So he's not going into great detail, but they're having these debates with Paul and Barnabas And now some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem because they wanted to bring this now to the apostles and the elders uh, about this particular question. Do you need to be circumcised? Do you need to follow what the Judaizers are saying? Now, Judaizers, they heard about Paul and they heard about Barnabas's outreach and how they're reaching the Gentiles. Now, perhaps also they heard through John Mark and other reports that came from people But the point is that they began to be fierce about this uh, in debate over circumcision and salvation because they are seeing now a path that these quote-unquote Christ followers, these Christians of the way were doing that was separate from Judaism. Now, we also have to understand that during this period of time in Rome, Christianity was just being viewed as a sect under Judaism. So it was protected and allowed to populate in the Greco-Roman era. Now, it says here we were appointed, it means to gain direction on the matter of of circumcision. The church leadership in Antioch, they send Paul and others to the apostles in Jerusalem. They are appointed to deal with this issue. Now, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul mentions some of the discussion he and the apostles had. He mentions this in in, in the, the letter to Galatia. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were Uh, makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through uh, Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised works also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That's Galatians chapter 2, 6 through 9. So this is right around the period of time when Paul writes that letter of what's happening here in Acts chapter 15. Now, uh, the voyage from Syrian Antioch here in verse 3 uh, to Jerusalem was over 250 miles. Now, back then, that was a long distance. It still is a long distance in a car, but you can get there in a few hours. But for them, that took them a long period of time. It could take them upward, upwards of a week. But it brought great joy to the brothers because many Hellenists in this region, they were converted after the martyrdom of Stephen 
going back to chapter 8, verses 4 through 25, and chapter 11, verse 19. So they were overjoyed to hear the, the spread that the gospel was having, the impact, if you will, that the gospel is having to many of the Gentiles. So the reports about the Gentiles coming to saving faith was well received by so many people. But of course, not by all, because you see this, this encountership that they started to have with people in the beginning of this chapter and in in here in verse four. And it says, but some believers in verse five belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up. And that's when they're giving this demand, according to the laws of Moses, you have to be circumcised. Now, Paul was not the only Pharisee who converted to Christianity. So here we have some Pharisees who come to saving faith and realize Jesus is the Messiah, but they're still stuck on how one is to live out the law of Moses. Now, this phrase here, party of the Pharisees, these Pharisees were still the belief that circumcision was important and it was also necessary for salvation. So even in the early church, remember, you don't have a lot of the church creeds. You don't have um, a lot of the early church writings. You don't clearly have a lot of the Pauline epistles because he's just about to write the first letter, which is in, which is Galatians. So they're just going off of smaller creedal things, but not like we have them like the Apostles' Creed, if you will, today. So they're saying you have to circumcise him because this is the practice that we've always had. Jesus was circumcised. The the disciples who are now apostles have been circumcised. The Pharisees, of course, some of these that came from the party of the Pharisees that are saved have been circumcised. So that was an identity. It was a way to mark people who were following the scriptures. So it wasn't customary for Jews, obviously, remember, to permit Gentiles to be circumcised. However, these converted Pharisees were demanding that the Gentile Christians be approved to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised. So they were having that mandate as Jewish people still because they were Jewish. That was one of their markers as a Jewish individual. But they're now applying that to the Gentiles. Now, the NIV First Century Study Bible says this, quote, conversion required sole devotion to the God of Israel circumcision for males, a mekvah, which was a ritual bath, and when the temple was in operation, a sacrifice. So once the process was complete, the convert was considered fully Jewish. If the convert was a male, even his children were considered Jewish. The ethnicity of children was passed through the father initially, though in later times it switched to the mother. The circumcised convert was obligated to keep the Jewish laws, end quote. So you can see, based on the mikvah, that you're circumcised, you have a ritual bath, and the temple at this period of time is still running, and you go offer a sacrifice. So the question now before us that we're going to be seeing, and we're going to see the, def- the defense in verses 6 through 12, is how much of that is indeed required for one to be saved? So now let's look at verse 6 through 12, where it says, The apostle and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers 
nor we who have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, we place this council, the Jerusalem Council is referred to as, it referred as in AD 49, which is where I put the letter to the Galatians. And this inquiry, this questioning, this debate that was among them, Peter stands up before them and he lays out this declaration. Now, some of this is similar to what he conveyed to Cornelius. If you go back to Acts chapter 10, 44 through 46, when he talked about how God knows the heart and he bore witness to them, giving the power of the Holy Spirit. He's referring to how God used him to reach the Gentiles because remember how he struggled because he felt it was defiled. And God says, what I have made clean is clean. So go do what I told you to do, right? So prior to Peter's report before the Jerusalem council, what's important too, I believe, is that when Peter stands up here and he gives this defense before the Jerusalem council, prior to this, I believe in Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14, is where Paul had confronted Peter because of his, his hypocrisy in the Syrian Antioch region when he was hanging out with Gentiles and the Judaizers would show up, the circumcised, and so he'd bail and go be with them. And he was showing partiality. And Paul, of course, confronts him. And we're told in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 2, where Paul writes, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, notice what Paul says. I said to Cephas or to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, notice the argument that Paul lays out. And this is where it's unpacked here at the Jerusalem Council. Notice what he says. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. So see, Paul, God used him to be exposed in this hypocrisy. Now this phrase that Peter uses, having cleansed their hearts, remember sacrifices were no longer necessary for purification. So already Peter's saying, listen, that for sure we don't do as a Jew because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Read, of course, the letter to the Hebrews later on in history, in church history, that will be written. Jesus says, shed blood. His death has atoned for the sins of mankind. And then when Peter says that by my mouth, what he's referring back to again, as I mentioned, is Cornelius. So he says, I have testimony that what I'm saying to you is true because in Acts chapter 11, God led me to go and to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? These are the final words of Peter as he confronts the disobedience of the Christian Jews and stresses to them that salvation is through faith and grace alone in Jesus Christ. I love this because as I mentioned earlier, Paul goes to Peter and he confronts him and he tells him what he's doing wrong. Barnabas was even being led astray, but what does it do? It, it reminds Peter of how God had used him. And now where Peter's standing up before the top dog leadership, if you will, the early church at this Jerusalem council. And he's saying, why are we putting God to the test? That's great conviction because his, bro his dear brother, Paul, had pointed that out in his own life. He refers to it being as a yoke on the neck. So Peter, he's referencing legalism 
Now, if you've ever experienced legalism in your own life, you're a lot more sensitive to it. As, P, as, as Jesus called it out in Matthew 23, verse 4, the hypocrisy of how the, he, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you know, to the Sadducees, he was pointing out, Jesus was pointing out the false obligation to the law, just like Peter's saying right now. And what was their response? They were silent. And so now what's amazing is the remainder of the book of Acts is going to be about Paul. And it's so cool because where we end with Peter is he's standing up and he speaks these words powerfully. And it was God using Paul to help Peter give this message. And he, and he uses it in front of these companions and he uses him to convince the leadership to reach more of the Gentiles with the gospel without these restrictions. So notice here now in verses 13 through 21, James puts forth a decision now after hearing from Peter. And it says here in verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord in all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So now James, the half-brother of Jesus, now remember, he came to believe in his brother, who is the savior of the world, God incarnate, at some point privately, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. So when he says, brothers, listen to me, I love this because remember, Paul comes down on Peter, but he does it in a way that draws Peter back to the truth. And so then God uses Peter where he's boldly speaking before the council. Jesus appears to James privately at some point, speaks to him. He gets saved and he's becoming this prominent leader in Jerusalem. And now notice how he tactically and winsomely appears before his companions, these leaders, and employs this great tactic. He doesn't mention Paul or Barnabas by name in order to avoid any additional controversy that might, that might take away from the matter at hand. He, he doesn't mention specific things that can lead people astray. He doesn't come down hard and start correcting Peter. Instead, James reminds the council of how God called Peter to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. He shifts away from, from Gentiles as proselytes and he focuses, notice, on scripture. He refers to Amos's prophetical word in Amos 9, verses 11 through 12, what we just read. And he focuses on this word because it talks about the Gentiles would become part of the family of God in this new covenant. This new covenant that they've been talking about since Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Acts 25, 6 through 7. So he says in verse 19, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those 
of the Gentiles who turn to God. So James recognizes, catch this, my friends, this is so important. James recognizes the new covenant established by God the Father through Jesus was for Jews and for Gentiles. Now, Gentiles, as we saw what Paul conveyed to Peter, if you're acting like a Gentile, but then you act like a Jew, but then you expect a Gentile to act like a Jew, but you're not even acting like a Jew when you're acting like a Gentile. I know, say that five times fast, right? But what he's saying is, we've had all of this history for thousands of years living out Judaism. But the Gentiles haven't. But in this new covenant, those mandates are not in the new covenant for Gentile. Now, what he says here, though, is he says, let's, let's one, notice that main point. But with the, with the approval of the council, James, he puts forth, notice, four guidelines. Number one, he says, well, we have to address a few things. And remember, this is in the early church. They're unpacking things. They're figuring things out as Jews and Gentiles are mingling with each other. One is you're not to be polluted by idols. What does this mean? Well, remember, Greeks and Romans had many paganistic rituals. So this was a way for Gentiles to lessen their former influences. That's key. Go, go, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, and you'll see why this was so significant. Number two, notice sexual morality. We need to avoid having sex outside of marriage. That's according to Leviticus 18, 6 through 20. So keep yourself pure in that sense in your relationships with, with individuals. Number three, what has been strangled, meaning let's avoid eating animals whose blood was not drained properly. Because remember, there's a lot of brutality. There's a lot of practices that you, that you can get involved in or participate in and therefore believe in, supposedly. So it was a way to be above reproach, if you will. And number four, blood. Remember, because the Old Testament prohibits eating and drinking blood in Genesis 9, verse 4, Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. Now, again, that's not saying if you do any one of these things, you're not saved. There's definitely a lot of people who still struggle through some of these things, but it was a way to start purifying in, you know, not segregating, but sanctifying the people in the culture they lived in a Greco-Roman culture. So James makes clear that the law of Moses has permeated the culture of both the Jews and also God-fearing Gentiles. In the council's letter now here in verse 21, it acted as a, a way to bargain and to almost invite the Gentiles to attend worship services and synagogues now and to learn the Jewish scriptures. It was also a way to break away traditionally of how they were, you know, controlling God-fearing Gentiles. So now here for a letter to the churches in verses 22 through 35, it says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called uh, Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles and Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsetting your minds, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to, to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives 
for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. By the word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Notice verse twenty-nine that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And then it says farewell. So that's the end of the letter. And then in verse thirty through thirty-five. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers in many words, with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So that's, a, that's quite a, a mouthful there when you see the impact that this letter was beginning to have in the thought, in the prayer, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So after debating the issue of circumcision with Peter and heeding the words of James and looking and examining the prophecy from Amos and other passages of scripture and evaluating the Gentiles and the outreach that Paul and Barnabas because of Peter have had up to this point, the council, they send representatives of both on both sides of this dispute. Judas, who is a Judean and Silas, who is a Hellenist. Isn't that interesting? Notice their strategy. They take two people, not from opposing sides, but culturally speaking, a guy from Judea and Silas and Hellenist to advance the gospel. And the whole purpose is to bring unity among Gentiles and Jews. My friends, see, the point is sometimes it, it takes a certain person who is from that native country. That's their culture. That's their language. Those are their people. And, they, and God can use that to bring great impact. The council's letter will also be delivered to the churches that Paul and Barnabas reach in their first missionary journey. So now it's after this debate in the Jewish, um, among the Jewish Christians at the Jerusalem council, this is going to usher in the first missionary journey in chapter 16, when we get to the next episode in verses four and five. And the four guidelines they acted as a way to unite Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, by practicing a few restrictions together. And you see Paul mentioning this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 through 23. Now, what's so amazing is sometimes, again, Luke mentions these people that God is using and Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, and they're encouraging and strengthening brothers with many words. We don't know exactly what these words were, but it's just so neat that the Holy Spirit is not just using Peter and Paul. The Holy Spirit's using Judas and Silas to encourage and to bring great comfort to many people. And of course, Paul and Barnabas, they remained here, it says in verse 35 in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of, of the Lord with many others also. In Syrian Antioch, this was a very important area. This is an area, matter of fact, as we study the book of Acts, we, we oftentimes see Syrian Antioch is where Barnabas and Paul go many times. And it explains the ongoing investment that they make 
in the lives of certain people. And matter of fact, when I actually read some of these passages like this, I think, where where is my Syrian Antioch? Where is your Syrian Antioch, if you will? Where is a place with certain people, maybe a certain church, maybe a certain ministry that you often go back to? Maybe you started it. Maybe you were a part of it in the beginning. Maybe you still invest in it. Maybe it was a period of time in your life early on in your marriage or at raising a family and then you move because of a job or whatever. But think about that, my friends, of a Syrian Antioch because in all the travel that Paul and Barnabas did, it's amazing as you read through the book of Acts, this area as they remained here teaching and preaching the word of the Lord and many others also was a an area of great importance and significance to them, not just ministerially, but also spiritually in their own individual lives. Now we draw our attention to the last section here. And this is kind of a sad one when you read it, but it all turns out well. And of course, this passage could be pretty controversial where this is the passage where Paul and Barnabas get into a huge argument and it causes them to go their separate ways. Now, this I titled in this section, verses 36 through 41, as the ministerial separation of Paul and Barnabas. Here, Luke writes, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. How Barnabas, now Barnabas wanted to take with them, John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, Although Paul intended to retrace his steps, that was the plan here, God would turn this into his actually second missionary journey. So, you know, Paul was with him in his first, um, and this second missionary journey, you know, the plan was that Paul wanted Barnabas to be with him. But guess what? Through this division, it actually is a good thing in a way because it caused uh, Barnabas and John Mark to go one area in Cyprus, and then it and it uses obviously the opportunity that Paul can take Silas, and they go to they depart and they go to the regions that he wanted to go into. Now let me just break down a couple of Greek words here, because in verse thirty seven when it says Barnabas wanted in Greek it means he reasoned in his planning, so he was when he was considering the the trips that they were going to be doing. He saw John Mark with him, how he planned the whole thing out. But then when it says here in verse 38, but Paul thought best, in the Greek, it carries the idea of a greater worth to prefer. So essentially what you have here is Barnabas is giving his case as to why they need John Mark. And that's why Paul and his thinking his argument was better. It was a greater value and, and it, it was obviously more preferable than um, Barnabas's is because he had withdrawn. And the Greek word here is to abandon a former relationship. So in some cases, I tend to believe my friends that 
John Mark had some issues with whether it was with Barnabas, his relative, or it was with Paul himself or with both, or he couldn't hang. He couldn't take, take it because he had some issues, but whatever it was, he abandoned not just the mission, but he had abandoned certain relationships. And so in Paul's opinion, and I can relate, you know, here with both men, Barnabas and Paul doing ministry for over 20 years, you, you have these type of encounters, unfortunately. Um, but notice here in verse 39, it has a sharp disagreement. And the Greek is a severe argument. It, it expresses this intense difference of opinion that's in the, in the wording in Greek. So that's what they were having an exchange over um, their differences of opinion. And it was really intense. And as a result of it, they didn't come to a agreement. And so they parted ways, they separated from one another. So it seems that Paul's issue with John Mark in Colossians 4 verse 10 um, was really one of principle, was one of principle. It doesn't seem like it was a personal nature somewhat. Now, remember, you can have a personal encountership that go that with someone and they can mistreat you, but you can still see it objectively and, and, and you're making a case on principle not because this person harmed you uh, personally. And so even though it may seem that John Mark hurt these relationships, Paul was seeing it on principle that, look, if he's abandoned us already and we have these relational issues with him, it's only going to cause more problems. And the focus here is for us to strengthen where we came from, to go back and to see how people are doing. And if we bring him that could cause problems within ourselves as a team, but also maybe it could send the wrong message. Maybe some of these people are not going to want to see John Mark because he bailed in Pamphylia. Now, perhaps Paul didn't feel John Mark was capable or faithful enough maybe to endure the hardships of the missionary work. Maybe he was concerned enough to say, look, he can't hang, but we don't know. We're only speculating. But in any case, you can understand why this was such a big issue. But you know what's so amazing? Is despite their differences here, Paul will later refer to Barnabas in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 um, as again, a fellow worker. So they're back together, okay? And the other thing that's so cool is, as I mentioned in Colossians 4, verse 10, in Philemon 24, there's approval that he has of John Mark. So at some point in the ministry after this incident between Barnabas and Paul, they're reunited. And I want to read you this in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. It says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in the ministry. Isn't that amazing? Despite the differences, you can see things go full circle. And so the split between Paul and Barnabas, it, it helped in the end. They had a certain plan as we all do as humans, but God has something different. And yet God can still use the mistakes that we do in the flesh and he can turn it for good. Now this phrase chose Silas, it's so neat because through this, uh, Paul got to know Silas, also known as uh, Silvanus in his earlier travels. And he will come to rely on this man. He wasn't planning on member taking him because he was just going to go with Barnabas. But now God uses Silas in the life of Paul because he becomes reliant on his leadership and his skills in chapter 15, verse 22, as we just read in, in verse 27 and verse 32. 
And not only that, but Paul mentions his trusted companion multiple times in his letters. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. And he refers to him in 1 Peter 5, verse 12 as a faithful brother. And then it says here in verse 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the Holy Spirit used Paul. The Holy Spirit used Silas mightily to build up the churches to, for them to stand strong in their faith and to oppose false doctrine all around them. And so, my friends, as we conclude this episode here on Stand Strong in the Word, it's amazing to me that we can have differences to the point where you never talk to somebody ever again. You disown them because you're in, starch, you're in staunch disagreement. You know, I put out a video a while ago um, regarding a certain Christian leader who has been associating with certain people that is questionable in their doctrine. And it's so sad because just because I disagree and I publicly um, mention it, it, you know, like a kind of a slight rebuke, but but to encourage this individual and not entirely trash him. And because I don't do that. I don't believe in that. I believe in Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in love to have your speech seasoned with salt, to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to those who ask with meekness and, and in truth. So we have to do it the way that Christ demonstrated for you and me. And so it's okay, okay, my friends, it's okay for us to have disagreements with people in the church. But the moment you have a disagreement, it's so sad because a lot of people automatically read that as division, I'm judging them, and the Bible says judge not. Now, the sad thing is, number one, you're rebuking me for apparently rebuking, rebuking somebody. You're judging me for apparently judging somebody that I'm not supposed to judge. And see, that's just, that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. The bottom line is we clearly see in scripture that we are to rebuke at times, that we are to correct people. And the Bible says you who are more spiritual or, or you who are older in the faith, that you are to model the faith to people in a way that is going to draw them to Christ, not to condemn them, say you're going to burn in hell. Jesus did not have that strategy, though he talked about hell as he talked about heaven and says, I am the gate, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He confronted the false teachers of the day. He said, woe to you. He says you're living as hypocrites in Luke chapter 12 because you care about the world and meeting your needs in the world, but you're neglecting the signs that I'm going to return because you don't care. And so he rebuked him for that. He turned over tables in anger. And so when Paul and Barnabas had this dissension among them, these strong disagreements, notice in the end, they didn't continue to bicker and start a Barnabas church and a Paul church. They got back together. And I just pray that whatever you're going through in life, if there's struggles in your own life, if you are facing some hardships in your life right now, that you look to the Lord. And if you have differences with people in the Christian community, make sure that you can lovingly disagree with each other. And hopefully you can find some common ground. So I hope that helps you guys. It blesses you. It strengthens your faith today as we looked at Acts chapter 15. Again, if you love what we're doing, if you've been inspired, if you've been motivated and you've never given to this ministry, please do so today. Pray about it. Go to the website, standstrongministries.org. Click on donate and give whatever the Lord is leading you to give to continue 
to help us share God's word to the rest of the world. So thank you guys for listening and watching. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends.